Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Blame It on the Aliens. I'm your host, Callie, and I'm so excited about this episode because it is all unexplainable stories. And that is my favorite topic of all time. We've got doppelgangers. We've got time slips that are crazy. We have near-death experiences. We have very close encounters that people were saved from unexplainable phenomenon. We have got it all. And this is, like I said, probably one of my favorite episodes of all time. So with that being said, and without further ado, let's get into it. So I go to a relatively old college built in the 1800s, and there's a bunch of stories of it being haunted, but I don't really buy into it that much. I've been here a couple of years already and haven't seen anything too weird, minus what I'm about to say, which is possibly the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me. My roommate is never here. She always just stays at home and commutes to school for classes and That means I basically live alone in my dorm. And as an introvert, I could not be happier. After dinner, I usually just go back to my room, lock the door, and work on homework. So a few nights ago, I was at my desk working on my paper in the dark and listening to music on my phone. All of a sudden, the music stopped and my laptop switched off on its own. Neither the computer nor my phone would turn back on like something had just disabled all the electricity in the room. At that point, I just kind of accepted my fate and decided that would be a good stopping point for homework. It was probably after midnight anyway, and the next day was a Saturday, so I didn't need to use my phone to set an alarm. I decided I'd probably just go to bed and let both devices charge. Less than a minute after everything shut off, there was a knock at my door. I remember walking to the door and going to look through the peephole. But after that, I remember nothing. I woke up in my bed the next morning on top of the sheets, which I never do, and I didn't even remember going to bed. On top of that, when I checked the door, it was unlocked. I never leave it unlocked. Even when I'm in the room, I'll check the door three times an hour out of paranoia just to make sure I didn't forget to lock it. I've even turned around halfway to class to see if I remembered to lock the door. I figured it must have been my roommate who came to the room that night, and I was just so tired I don't remember. So I texted her to tell her she'd forgotten to lock the door last night. But she responded by saying that she was never at the apartment. I thought she was lying or something, but then she FaceTimed me and she was in a completely different state. The only two people I would have opened the door for were her and campus security, 
and I have no idea why security would have been at my door past midnight, especially since I was making zero noises. And no one else has a key, so I would have had to be the one to unlock the door. Nothing in my apartment was out of place or missing. I finally assumed that I must be dreaming the whole thing and that I'd somehow unlock the door in my sleep. My phone and laptop were working fine, after all, and showed no signs of damage. A couple of days later, though, I started telling my friend in class what had happened, and as soon as I mentioned that my electronics stopped working, some other girl that I didn't even know butted in and asked, was there a knock on your door after? This girl proceeded to match my story almost exactly. She was alone in her room, all of the electricity shut off. There was a knock on her door. She went to check through the peephole and she remembers nothing after that. Her only difference is that she woke up on the floor next to her bed and not on top of the bed. She says that she also knows someone that this has happened to, but she wouldn't tell me who. I'm just thinking that if there's three of us, this may have happened to a lot more people that we don't know about. Has anyone experienced anything similar? Is there anything I should do about this? I don't think campus security would do anything about it since nothing was stolen. I wasn't hurt or anything, and there aren't even any cameras in the buildings. Great security plan, I know. They barely even do anything about actual crime, so I'm pretty sure I'd get laughed at if I said anything. What was this, and what do I do? Update. This is going to be very long and I apologize in advance. A ton of people had questions and suggestions, which I'm going to address first before I even get into the stuff that's happened since I made my last post. You can skip ahead if you don't want to read that stuff. A few people told me that I should at least talk with campus security, so I did. Shockingly, they didn't believe me. Sarcasm. They said there wasn't much they could do if nothing was stolen and told me I probably just had a really vivid dream. But they did say they'd change the lock for 80 bucks. I don't have that kind of money. And I didn't even have anything that would convince them that my story was true, so I just left it at that. I also did another thorough check of my room for hidden cameras. That turned up nothing, at least as far as I could tell. One person asked if the campus was near a military base. It isn't, but I remembered that there is a government facility in the surrounding area. I don't want to give away my location, but it's a pretty famous one. Not the kind you'd think of when someone says government testing, but still the kind of place where you'd get shot if you tried to get too close. I read another story that mentioned something similar involving two guys going into a dorm building and hypnotizing all of the girls there. And personally, I don't buy this story. I don't have proof that it didn't happen, but I'm pretty sure this is just fiction. That being said, reading the story did lead me to make an interesting discovery for my own situation, which brings me to my next point. The things that me and the other two possible victims have in common. One commenter said we should make a list to see if there's some common link that would make us all targets. This is what we came up with. One, the three of us were born in the same year, 
too. Our laptops and phones are the same brand, and in the case of our electronics malfunctioning, maybe this is relevant? Three, our hometowns are all within a two-hour drive away from campus. Four, we're all here on full scholarships. Five, and this may be the weirdest one, we were all hypnotized at our school's hypnotist show. That last commonality is the one I discovered due to someone suggesting the other story. Maybe it's just a really weird coincidence, but it does play into a mass hypnosis theory pretty well if we know that we are all capable of being hypnotized. However, I have a bit of background in hypnosis. I practice it as a hobby. And my general understanding of it is that you'd need someone to be a willing participant in order to hypnotize them. Of course, it's a bit more nuanced than that, especially when you get into the topic of covert hypnosis, but that's a rabbit hole of its own and I don't have time or experience enough to explain thoroughly enough on here. Point is, we are all very susceptible to hypnosis. I didn't even volunteer at the show. I got hypnotized while I was watching in the audience. Same goes for the other girl. So if the whole MK Ultra theory some people were talking about is true, and the government is conducting mind control experiments on students using advanced hypnotic techniques, I guess we'd be the perfect guinea pigs. Again, not saying this is the case, but it is really crazy to think about. Okay, so enough of the theorizing. Here is the new information. Just to make this easier to type out, I'm going to call the girl from my class A and the other dude she knows B. The three of us have begun having weird dreams ever since the incident. At first, we didn't think much of it, but it's been about a week and every dream we've had has been like this. It's super hard to explain, but these dreams are almost unnaturally good. You know how dreams are generally neutral or at least have some mix of good and bad emotions? These dreams are all so happy that when we wake up from them, it's almost depressing. Like a few nights ago, I had a dream that my parents were back together and we were all celebrating my birthday. Then A had a dream where she was playing with hundreds of puppies in a grassy field full of flowers. It's so ridiculously cheesy, but in the dream, it feels like we're experiencing heaven. Also, and this is probably the weirdest part, after waking up from these dreams, my vision is black and white for a good 10 seconds. I'll perceive absolutely no color at all. And it will look like I'm in an old movie. I'm not sure if that's because of any of the odd stuff that's been happening, but it is a very unsettling experience. A and B haven't had that happen to them, so I can't say for certain that it's related to the stuff that's been going on. And a day after making this first post, we found another person it happened to. Another girl, we'll call her C, down the hall from me, had basically the same exact experience as us, except it was months ago. Other than that, she fits all of the same similarities I mentioned above, born the same year, was hypnotized at the hypnosis show, etc. We're not sure why she was a much earlier occurrence, but we're pretty sure she's telling the truth. We all started sleeping in the same room together to make sure we aren't alone at night. Gonna be honest, I wasn't too scared when this whole thing started, but I've been slowly getting more and more freaked out the more we talk about it and theorize on what's happening. The whole situation has gone from weird to absolutely dreadful. 
We have a rule to keep the door locked and not approach it if the power goes out. We also set a curfew for ourselves at 10.30 p.m. The only problem is that the room doesn't have its own bathroom. There's a communal one way down the hall and around the corner for girls. The boys' restroom is upstairs. So last night, B needed to use the restroom. It must have been around one in the morning. I was super tired and super paranoid that something would happen if he left. I tried to offer him a water bottle to use and he said that was gross and insisted on leaving to go upstairs. Before he left, we set a secret knock so that we'd know if it was him at the door or not. Looking back, it would have been a good decision to have one or all of us go with him as a buddy system thing, but in the moment, it was hard to think rationally. Almost immediately after he shuts the door on his way out, the lights go out. Three of us freeze and don't say a thing as we watch the door. In the light from the hallway, coming in under the door, we see the shadow of two feet walking in front of the door. They stop and stand there for maybe 30 seconds, though it felt like much longer than that. I can't tell you how scared we were. I couldn't even speak or say anything. Then the shadow slowly walked away from the door and the lights came back on. We were all still holding our breath and A was practically on the verge of tears. B came back very shortly after, but he said he didn't see anyone in the hallway as he walked to the bathroom or back to the room. Maybe it was nothing and we're just freaking out over some sort of coincidence, but that was probably the scariest moment of my life. None of us slept that night except for B. I'm currently trying to find out if I can attend class remotely from home for the rest of the semester because this is freaking me out. But I don't know how I'm going to explain to my family why I don't feel safe on campus. Hopefully this is the last update. Again, I appreciate everyone offering advice and providing theories. It feels comforting to know that people are taking our experience somewhat seriously. I've been reading all sorts of stories on the subreddit about reality glitches, a term new to me until a few days ago, and I've finally decided to write out my experience. I still don't know how to explain what had happened, but at least now I know what to call it since coming here. When I was 10 years old, I used to have a reoccurring nightmare about my death, to put it bluntly. I can't remember all the details, but in all of the dreams, I would be looking through what might have been a window frame from the outside. There was also an orange jacket or garment on a chair inside that I could see through the window. I would make a motion as if I was going to ascend a rung, and suddenly I would fall what felt like at least three stories. Then I'd be lying down staring up at the sky and see a wooden ladder presumably from which I fell. The image of this ladder leaning against the house would be the last thing I would see before waking up. These nightmares probably wouldn't have caused me so much distress if it hadn't been for how goddamn real they felt. I mean, I could smell the air, feel the sun on my back. I could even feel the incredible pain throughout my body as I lay on the ground. Anyways, 
I pretty much forgot all about these nightmares as I grew older. I stopped having them around age 11 and never had one again. I'm 33 now, and my good friend just got married to his high school sweetheart. We'll call him Jerry. They live in a nice barn-style house that he built himself. I have limited carpentry skills, but despite knowing this, my friend asked me to help him with certain parts of the building process. Drywall, putting in windows, shingling, and whatnot. I think he just wanted to spend some quality man time with me, to be honest. It took a total of 11 months to complete the house. And like I said, I would drop by from time to time to help Jerry with the odd job. Once the house was nearing completion, Jerry had started putting in the windows. He asked me to come down one weekend to help him put some windows on the third floor. We ended up doing three that Saturday and called it quits around seven. Sunday morning, Jerry called me up to ask a favor. There was a big storm coming in Sunday night and he had realized that while we did put the windows in, we didn't seal one of them with caulking. He didn't like the idea of water getting inside after we just put the drywall up, so he asked me to seal the window up as soon as I could. He had to take his wife to the hospital, so he was unable to, plus I only lived 20 minutes away. So after a brief McDonald's breakfast, I headed down to the house, found the caulking gun, and then searched for a ladder. Jerry had brought two down to the site, one aluminum and one wood. I grabbed the wooden one as it was already on the side of the house with the unsealed window. Once I propped it up against the house, I began to ascend. Once I was high enough, I was able to peer through the window, and when I did, I felt like a jolt of electric fear went through my body. The nightmares I had as a kid came back to me in a flash. The smell, the warm sun hitting my back, it was identical to the dream. And I also recognized Jerry's orange hunting jacket that he had left on a chair on the other side of the window. Everything was exactly the fucking same. Remembering the rest of the dream, I quickly descended the ladder and went to my truck, feeling kind of disturbed. I stood there for a while debating if I should try to seal the window or not. In the end, what I did was try my best to seal it from the inside. I'll admit, I did a half-assed job. But hey, can you blame me? I finished up and went home, trying to forget about it all. The following weekend, Jerry asked me to come down and help him shingle the roof. When I arrived there, I noticed Jerry was limping a bit. When I asked him what happened, he said he had rolled his ankle when one of the rungs on his wooden ladder broke. He was only a few feet up, so it wasn't a big deal. That was it for me. I stayed calm, but mentally, I was a wreck. Not only did my dream somehow predict that ladder breaking, I half knew about it, but never even warned Jerry. I felt like shit. That's about it, though. Later on, I did realize that I must have had the ladder upside down when I climbed it, meaning the defective rung would be near the top. When Jerry went to use it, he must have flipped it the other way so the rung was near the bottom. I still think about this from time to time, and it never ceases to disturb me.
I've told this to my friend at least a dozen times because he wants to make sense of it and ultimately urged me to post it here so maybe someone else can make sense of it. This truly shook me. Sorry for the long post, but he told me to give all of the details I told him, as do the rules, lol. This happened on a road trip when I was 17, almost 18. It was me and my sister, a couple of years older than me, and she was driving a super long, beaten road through the desert. About two hours on the road pass, and suddenly I noticed the car that was behind us veered off the road and came to a standstill. My sister audibly wonders what they're up to. A few dozen seconds later, there's this terrible series of bumps and cracks in the road that shake the car and knock the phone off of the seat, taking the aux out and halting the music. It lands close to me, so I pick it up and start to reconnect the phone. When I do, we get this random catchy ad about trash. The next thing of note happens seconds after the ad ends. I stare off into the window and I see a truck parked ahead of us. As we pass it, I stupidly kept looking at it and the sheen it gave off, the glare from the sun, completely blinded me for a bit. When I closed my eyes, I still saw the outline of it. I was afraid it had burned into my retinas when I finally opened my eyelids. It started to fade slowly. And all I can remember seeing after that is the emergency airbag in the car pop into my face and sounds of metal on metal. My vision started going black and the image that's in my eyes from the truck fades completely. But when it fades, I open my eyes to see us still driving like nothing happened. That's when I noticed the car behind us. Same license plate as before, same car, color, even the same driver to my eyes. The same things happened again. The road being bad and bumping, the phone down, the aux disconnecting, and the same damn ad playing. All the while I'm panicking in my head since my sister dismissed my questions like nothing out of the ordinary had just happened. We come up to the truck again and I stare. My eyes again have the after image of it. Just as before, I hear metal scraping and feel the airbag pummel my face. As it fades, I'm scared to open my eyes again. But I hear my sister ask, what is that car doing? It forces my eyes open to see the same car for the third time, steering into the open desert before halting. I'm in full-blown panic mode as I look ahead and see the crude road up ahead. I hold onto the phone for dear life and manage to stop the phone from disconnecting, but we still get an ad when the next song plays. The same damn ad. As it nears its end, I stop myself from looking at the truck and instead look ahead, noticing that the car in the opposite lane is swerving slightly. I piece it together in my head and caution my sister of the driver in the car. She has to swerve to avoid the car as it goes into the wrong side of the road, barely missing our car, thanks to my sister's driving. The rest of our trip went without much of a hitch. My friend said it may have been something like quantum immortality or a swap between universes. I've always been interested in the stuff but I have no clue how to explain my experience. 
This past year was my senior year of college, and I was thrilled to be living with an alumni of my sorority who I'm very close with. We'll call her Abby for clarity's sake. Abby and I weren't actually supposed to live in the apartment we ended up in. We were originally going to be living in a townhouse with two other girls, but they started so much drama a month before we were supposed to move in that we had to contact our landlord to find a different place within their company to live. Thankfully, we found the two-bedroom, one-bathroom basement apartment in a quiet area off campus. The first month was fine and without incident, but as the days went by, some strange things began to happen in the apartment. One morning, Abby woke up to a kitchen cabinet open. She wasn't that concerned about it and figured that I'd just forgotten to shut it the night before. The next morning, a different cabinet was open, and once again, she shrugged it off. However, I went home one weekend and she woke up to find every cabinet in the kitchen wide open and the sink running. Needless to say, Abby was scared and spent the night at her boyfriend's. Two weeks later, we were watching TV and heard the bathroom door close. I tried to calm Abby down by saying that the fan we kept in the bathroom blew it closed. However, when we went to bed, we thought we could hear someone walking around our living room. There's no way someone broke into our apartment and hid the whole day, only to come out at night and screw around with us. I was home the whole day, and Abby was home from 11 in the morning on. That incident took place shortly before Christmas break, and all was calm in the apartment until February. Abby had gone home for the weekend, and I was home alone, relaxing on the couch and doing homework. It was pretty late at night, so I turned on the TV for background noise and curled up on the couch to sleep. I woke up at 2.32 in the morning to see Abby walking through the front door, smiling but not saying anything. I blinked, still groggy from sleep, and asked if she was okay. She just looked at me and proceeded to take off her shoes and walk into the kitchen. Something about her didn't seem right. Like, this girl looked like Abby and walked like her, but uh, I don't know, it wasn't her. I again asked her if she was okay because it was so early in the morning for her to be coming home. Abby looked at me, smiled, and began washing something in the sink. Something inside me felt a profound sense of dread, like I was in actual danger and I needed to get away. As quickly as possible, I went to my room and locked my door. My roommate followed me because I heard someone tapping their finger against the door. Once, twice, three times, four times, five times, it wouldn't stop. I didn't say another word because it felt like if I did acknowledge her, it gave her more strength. I don't know, that doesn't make much sense, but that was my instinct. I curled up beneath my blankets and stared at my bedroom door, almost waiting for her to kick it in. My eyes felt heavy, and the tapping was almost like a metronome, enticing me to sleep. As I drifted back to sleep, the taps seemed to slow down to a trickle. The morning after, I was exhausted. It felt like I had taken 20 Advil PM to help me sleep, but I remembered everything that had happened last night. Cautiously, 
I left my room and saw that Abby's bed hadn't been disturbed or slept in. I went to the living room and her shoes and purse weren't there. A cold feeling crept into my spine as I sent her a text asking if she had come home that night. She responded that no, she hadn't and wouldn't be home for another two days. But I checked the sink and the bowl that Abby had been washing had been cleaned and put away. I firmly believe I was not dreaming or hallucinating. And I know that this wasn't some elaborate prank by Abby because she would never do something like that. I firmly believe that something took the shape of Abby that night and that its intentions were not good. There were a few other experiences in that apartment, but nothing so dramatic as what I went through that night. I'm sorry if this post isn't very exciting or dramatic, but I thought it was worth sharing to get everyone's thoughts on this whole experience. Was this a doppelganger? I thought this story might interest some of you since I'm still blown away by the details. As the title says, my niece was diagnosed with a tumor of the pineal gland at the age of three. As you can imagine, this was heartbreaking and rocked my family's world. But I want to share some of the unique details of her story. Keep in mind that the pineal gland is also known as the third eye. When my niece was just five months old, I moved in with my sister. Right before diagnosis, three years, we noticed crazy things happening. For almost a year prior, we tried to find out what was wrong with my niece. There were many symptoms that just did not seem right until eventually they all boiled over. Before we got to that point, some very unique things happened. First, we were getting ready to go to a family event for the day. My niece was really sick, which was not unusual, nauseous and lethargic. It was around this time that we began to realize that something was really wrong with her. As we were loading up the car, my sister was in the driver's seat and I was helping my niece buckle in the back seat. I buckled her and then went to close the door and as I did, I heard a voice say very loudly, don't take her, she's too sick. At the same exact time, we all three said, what did you say? My sister and I heard the same thing, and we thought that each other had said it. We pulled away, not knowing what to think. She fell asleep through most of the day, and this was the first time our parents mentioned that something must be very wrong with her, as a three-year-old would not sleep most of the day around family and friends. Within that same week, my sister was in the shower and began angrily yelling my name and asking me, why would you say that? I told her I was in the living room and didn't say or hear anything. She told me that she heard a voice say three times, your child is going to die. Fast forward a few days and at bedtime, my niece starts crying on multiple occasions and tells us that she doesn't want to die. We had no idea where she got this from or why she was saying this, but it was enough to freak us out. The next two weeks were a rapid blur and finally we got the shocking diagnosis. At this time, and the following two relapses, she would present 
psychic tendencies. We always knew the cancer was back because of this. She would tell us who was calling. She would tell me mommy's home before she pulled it in the driveway. She knew of an extended family member's cancer diagnosis and confronted said family member before she even shared the news. She also piped up one day in the car as I discussed the lack of Dunkin' Donuts on the way to my night classes. She said, have you tried the intersection of blank and blank? When I asked her where she got that from, she just said, I don't know, I heard it in my head. Sure enough, there was a Dunkin' Donuts exactly where she said. Another time at a family function, she walked around singing happy birthday and we all laughed thinking, what a happy four-year-old she was. I kept telling her, we were just having a barbecue. There was no birthday. Then my mom announced later that it just so happened to be my deceased grandmother's birthday. One of the last premonitions, for lack of better words, we shared was her telling me I would have a baby girl and she wouldn't be here to see them. She was right. I had three and she is their guardian angel. I've only shared this with a few people. It's one of my earliest memories. I was about six years old when this happened. I was on vacation at the Edgewater Hotel in Gatlinburg, Tennessee with my family, and we were in the hot tub, which was indoors. In this indoor area was also a swimming pool and hotel rooms lined up next to the pool. My parents needed to go to our hotel room for some reason, which was about a 15 second walk away and they left me alone in the hot tub. I was the only one there in the entire indoor pool area. I was enjoying the hot tub and decided to walk around in it. And as I was walking towards the middle of the hot tub, my feet slipped from under me and I discovered it was much deeper than I thought when I sank to the bottom of it. And for some reason, I couldn't gain any footing. I remember panicking and flailing, trying to reach the surface and my feet kept slipping at the bottom. I very quickly reached the point where I couldn't hold my breath any longer. This may sound crazy, but I very vividly remember breathing in water at this point, as in I inhaled water, not swallowed, but actually inhaled a half breath worth of water. I still remember the sensation of water entering my lungs, but there was no pain. I then had the realization that I was about to die. And in that moment, I felt a hand grab mine and pull me out of the water. And when I looked up, there was this old man smiling at me. I looked at him in shock for several seconds, speechless before saying, thank you. He continued smiling and never said a word. I then ran to the hotel where I found my parents arguing about something. I tried to tell them what had just happened, but they wouldn't let me speak. Then I ran back out to try to find the man who saved me and I couldn't find him. I even went to the reception area and asked if they had seen an old man pass by and no one had seen him. I realized at this point that it was an angel that saved me. How my six-year-old brain knew this, I don't know, but I still have no doubt that it truly was an angel and not a person who saved me.
This event took place about 1992. I was just a young man and in the military. I was stationed at Fort Hood, Texas at the time. Those of you that are familiar with Fort Hood will know what I'm talking about when I say North Fort Hood. For those of you that are not, let me try to explain so you'll better understand why we were where we were when this happened. Fort Hood is a very large military base. It's probably one of the largest military bases by land in the U.S. The main base where you would find all of the buildings and motor pools full of vehicles and so forth is just called Fort Hood. It's on the south end of the overall land that compromises Fort Hood and just outside its gates is the town of Killeen. Most of Fort Hood is wilderness. That wilderness is training area for soldiers to go and train in. And there's also a large impact area for the artillery units that have to train with their cannons. At the far northern end of the base, there's a small complex called North Fort Hood. It takes about 30 or 40 minutes to drive from the main base up to North Fort Hood. In the early 1990s, there was not much in the way of buildings or infrastructure at North Fort Hood. The unit that I was assigned to had to calibrate a piece of equipment and that meant that it had to be set up and left in place for about a week while the calibration took place. I'm not going to get into details about this equipment and it's honestly not vital to the story anyway. What is important to note is that we had to set this equipment up at North Fort Hood during the process. And during the day, we had some soldiers who were there working on calibrations. But at night, we obviously weren't just going to leave this expensive equipment unguarded. So every night, we would leave two soldiers with the equipment to keep an eye on things and make sure nothing happened to it. It was very easy duty by every measure. There was a tent to stay in and plenty of food. Soldiers who stayed the night to guard the equipment got the next day off. Basically, we would just sit in the tent, play cards or some other game and just keep an eye on things. It was basically camping. I volunteered to take a Thursday night as my turn at guard duty. This was because I had vacation leave time starting the following Monday. My rationale was simple. Take guard duty on Thursday night get off Friday and start my leave time early. It was myself and another young soldier who was a friend of mine. Both of us were just kids. I had just turned 21 and I believe he was just 19 or so. Keep in mind that this is 1992, so while cell phones did exist, they were by no means as prolific as they are now. It was actually pretty rare to see a person with a cell phone and when you did, they were in these big leather carrying bags and they were expensive. Needless to say, neither of us had a cell phone. Why is that important? Because we were dropped off for guard duty around 5 p.m. and everyone else left. We had no vehicle and no way to communicate with anyone. We were entirely alone if anything happened and of course we were not expecting anything to happen. It was after all very easy duty. Watch the equipment, play some cards, Eat some chow, no problem. We were sitting in the tent when the first wind started to pick up and I noticed some storm clouds moving in from the west. Now, whoever had set that hex tent up apparently had no interest in doing it properly because as the winds got worse, the tent was really leaning as though it might fold at any moment. Clearly, we were about to get hit with a pretty severe thunderstorm and 
Anyone who has ever lived in Central Texas can tell you that the storms there can blow up quickly and pretty violently. Fortunately for us, there was a deuce and a half truck with shelter on the back. And for those that don't know, a deuce and a half is a large six wheel drive truck. And if you want to get an idea of what they look like, you can Google M35A2 truck. This particular truck had a shelter on the back and that's where we retreated to in order to get out of the path of the approaching storm. Before anyone asked, I should note that we could not drive the truck away from the campsite because it was needed for the calibration and we wouldn't abandon our post anyway. This falls under the first general order and anyone who's ever been in the army knows what I mean. So we secured ourselves in the shelter while the storm passes and it was a typical Texas frog strangler to be sure. Miraculously, the tent didn't blow over and I was surprised by that. Still, we decided to stay in the back of the truck until dawn as we had already moved one of our cots inside. We finally laid down about 10 p.m. and it was very quiet. This is a very remote area and while we were in a clearing next to our runway, there were no buildings present and all around the airstrip was just woods. Today, there are buildings there as I have recently looked on location on Google Maps. At any rate, we had left the door on the shelter just slightly open for two reasons. One, because the shelter had no running power to it, so there was no airflow going through it. Shutting the door would have left us susceptible to the effects of carbon monoxide. We needed fresh air. Two, we needed to be able to hear what was going on outside. We decided to take turns getting some rest, although we had been told we were allowed to sleep if we wanted to. We were still on base and there was absolutely no reason to expect that anything at all was going to happen. My friend was on the cot by the door of the shelter and I was on the floor at the other end. I felt like I had just dozed off when I was shaken violently awake. It was my friend. And as I sat up, he was pulling the door to the shelter closed and trying to put a lock on it by using the light from his wristwatch. He was obviously very upset and scared. It was the kind of fear that can't be faked. He wasn't trying to prank me. This was primal fear. I kept asking him what was wrong and he finally managed to tell me that something had grabbed him by the foot and tried to pull him from the shelter. My first thought was that he had dozed off and had a nightmare. He was insistent that he had not and even stated that whatever had grabbed him had said to him, we'll be back for you and let him go as he was shaking me awake. I wasn't sure if it was a prank or not, but my gut instinct was that he was petrified and his hands were shaking as he tried to lock the shelter door. So there must be some truth to it. I told him that we couldn't leave the door closed because of carbon monoxide and I was the higher ranking. So technically I was in charge. He refused to stay by the door if it was going to be open even a little. So I agreed to switch places with him. I opened the door just a couple of inches and laid down on the cot, just believing he had had a really bad nightmare. He was on the floor at the other end of the shelter. Within a few minutes, some pretty strange things began to happen. There were scratching sounds on the shelter, scratching on the sides, on the top and on the front where the cab of the truck was. A few times the door moved ever so slightly, but never opened. Needless to say, that by this time, I was convinced that something or someone was definitely outside 
and both of us were pretty scared. I reached to the end of the cot I was on and pulled out the metal cross member that is used to give it tension. After that, I felt around under the cot and found a wooden handle to a pickaxe. In the army, we call these pioneer tools, but most of you will know it as a pickaxe handle without the pickaxe part at the end. This I handed to my friend and I instructed him that if anyone opened the door to the shelter, we were going to start beating them with our makeshift weapons and don't stop beating until whoever it was was down on the ground and not moving. The scratching on the exterior of the shelter continued intermittently throughout the night. We made no effort to call out to whomever, whatever it was. I think we were both just in flight mode. If anyone had pulled the door to that shelter fully open, I had full intentions of fighting for all I was worth. I'm certain my friend felt the same way. Eventually, it began to get light outside, and as the sky began to get light, the scratching stopped. We stayed in the shelter for another 40 or 50 minutes until the sun was fully up. At that point, I said that I was going to push the door all the way open, jump off the back of the truck, and if he saw anyone, just start swinging. So I counted to three, flung the door open, and jumped off the truck. When you're 21, you can jump off of a deuce and a half and it doesn't hurt. Now I would be far more cautious. At any rate, there was nothing, not a soul. We looked around the truck and the camp, nothing. What I noticed immediately was that while we were leaving boot tracks in the still wet ground, there were no other tracks around the truck at all. I began to look for loose items on the shelter that might account for the scratching sound nothing. I don't know whether to feel relieved or still be on edge. We packed up our gear and about 30 minutes later, the relief NCO arrived in a Humvee. He wasn't even fully out of the truck and we were putting our stuff in it to leave. He laughingly remarked that we seemed really ready to go. We never told him a thing. In fact, we never said anything to anyone in our unit about what happened. We probably should have, but I think we're afraid that we would be laughed at. At any rate, I got behind the wheel of the Humvee and my friend got in the back on the passenger side. I drove down the road of ways and came to a stop at the main highway that we could take back to get to Fort Hood. At that moment, there came a clear, loud, and distinct clap of thunder. I leaned out of the window and looked up and then I looked back at my friend who was in the back of the truck and he said something... I will never forget. There's not even a fucking cloud in the sky, man. I believe I probably set a record for the fastest drive back to Fort Hood in a Humvee that morning. I am not one to believe in this stuff. I think a lot of this paranormal stuff is just active imaginations or people making it up. But something happened to us that night and I will never forget it. It scared the hell out of me and I don't ever want to experience it again. That's my story, and it is 100% true. A little bit of background about myself. I've worked my entire adult life in the Pacific Northwest woods over 15 years in total, with about seven years of that being for the Park Service of Olympic National Park. Many, many experiences over the years could warrant the title of creepy, but this one in particular has always stuck with me. 
While working for the park service, one of my jobs was that of a restoration carpenter. We would travel to old backcountry historical cabins, emergency shelters, homesteads, and chalets, tasked with repairing and restoring them to their original historic accurate states. This was a wonderful and demanding job. I would spend eight days at a time living off the beaten path, usually deep in the backcountry. Sometimes we'd be flown in supplies, sometimes we'd use llamas or mules to pack our gear. All the while, sleeping in thinly walled single tents, cooking over a fire or whisper light stove, using the same tools and techniques the original homesteaders had at their disposal in the late 1800s to construct and survive in this unforgiving environment. One late fall, I was assigned to work near Lake Ozette at an old homestead off the trail near the constructed boardwalk. For those unfamiliar with the area of Lake Ozette, it's eight miles long and three miles wide. It sits at the largest unaltered natural lake in Washington. Lake Ozette has a long and rich history of Native American culture. The Maka Tribal Center in Nia Bay Houses discoveries found in the area dating back to 2000 years along with a local village that was well-preserved over 300 years ago by a mudslide that left most of the artifacts intact. The Ozette Loop Trail, which the homestead was directly adjacent to, is approximately 9.4 miles through and through. The man-made boardwalk takes you under giant cedar groves, meanders through huge patches of chest tisalol before delivering you to Alstrom's Prairie about 2.5 miles from the trailhead. Alstrom's Prairie, a giant soggy meadow, was once farmed by two Swedish immigrants. They constructed a small cabin and some outbuildings on the 150-acre bog. With cattle, sheep, vegetable gardens, and the help of a little Swedish ingenuity, they managed to etch out lives for themselves here for over 50 years. Over time, the forest, as it always does, decided to take back what was once its own. The now decades-long abandoned farm was hardly recognizable. Our job was to beat back the encroaching forest, put new windows in the main cabin, pipe in a new stove, apply fresh paint, and fix up portions of the semi-dilapidated barn. The ultimate goal being to allow guided tours to take place sometime in the future. For about three weeks, we stayed at the Ozette bunkhouse while working at Alstrom's. This was good duty for us, We weren't sleeping under the rain, our beds were warm, our hike was short, and the terrain not difficult. We even had TV. The bunkhouse was located near the highway and ranger station. We would hike the five-mile loop every day, bringing with us boards, tools, paint, and everything else we needed on our backs. These were full 10-plus hour days, usually started our morning hike around 7 and beginning our evening return hike back to the bunkhouse around 1700. At one point during the fall, there were four of us working this project, but at the time of this event, there was only two of us remaining. Most of the hard work had already been finished. We needed to hike a few last boards into the prairie to complete a portion of the woodshed before we called the job done. I volunteered to be the pack mule for the day, my only job being to carry as many boards as I could muster in each trip to the prairie before returning to the ranger station for the next load. It was late in the season for hikers at this point. The weather had turned, and we'd be lucky to see two or three people a day doing the loop. After around my fourth or fifth trip, I was pretty white. It was getting late in the evening now. 
around 1600 and my coworker had called it a day. I thought I could get one more trip in before it got too dark. My rationale being that the more trips I did today, the less I would have to do tomorrow. We passed on the trail. I told him my intentions and he continued on. I delivered the last of the boards for the day, took a look around the prairie as the sun started to tuck behind the trees and started my hour hike back to the ranger station. The lighting on the boardwalk was quite low at this point. The cedars blocking most of the ambient light left by the setting sun and making visibility quite diminished. I'm not a nervous hiker and fail to spook easily. Having solo hiked for weeks on end in the backcountry, I've been stalked by cougars, confronted by Kodiak bears in Alaska, even ran into a few demented hillbillies over the years. As I left the prairie that evening, the hair on my neck stood on end. Goosebumps erupted from my forearms and an uneasy feeling swept over me. Suddenly I wanted to walk faster, jog and then sprint. I didn't. I instead convinced myself that I'd been reading too many fantasy novels before bedtime. I walked another five minutes or so before I started to hear something faint, something that sounded like music. Impossible, I told myself. I'm the only one out here and still at least two miles from civilization. That civilization in reality being likely the only other soul out there, my coworker. Sure enough, however, I heard music. More specifically, a piano. It started out so faint I had to stop moving and actually try to hear it. The steps on the wooden boardwalk being too loud. Every time I paused to hear it, it became unmistakable. It got louder. I stood there, sun now fully hidden behind the horizon, in total silence other than this piano. I became aware that there were no longer noise of life, no birds, no insects, no wind, no rustling of leaves or underbrush, absolutely nothing other than the piano. As if everything was being weighted down by a fog of emptiness of some sorts. I've encountered this dead time before in the woods. Certain places have it, but this was somehow different, unique to this place, unique to this moment in time. I tried to focus on the keys, but I couldn't recognize the composition, unsurprising as I mostly listened to Metallica and Korn at the time. It was playing with a purpose. It was controlled, in tune, thoughtful. It was a song, and, and somehow I felt that it was meant just for me in this moment. I started walking again, almost on cue to the music, and once again it got louder. As my pace increased, so did the tempo of the keys, still in tune, never faltering. It reached a climax, the perfect combination of my haste, my dread, my heartbeat, and the tempo of the music. Then, as quickly as it came, the piano stopped, whooshed away into the fraction of a moment. It didn't trail off. It didn't fade into extinction. It was just gone. Suddenly, everything that was absent was swept away as if by a gust of wind. The stillness was gone, the gloom, the stagnation and the weight of everything was lifted. My next step on the boardwalk was once again in reality. The evening was just as absent of light as before, but it felt like life somehow was once again injected back into the forest. The woods seemed normal again. I didn't hear the piano again that night, nor since. 
I told my coworker every detail when I reached the bunkhouse. He showed no signs of disbelief. We didn't talk about it again until years later, when something similar happened to another Park Service employee. When I told my grandfather about what happened, as he was a retired park ranger who had worked nearby at Mora, the next station over, without the least bit of hesitation, he asked, did you hear the bagpipes along with it or just the piano this time? It seems, as I've learned and experienced since then, there's a lot more to that place, a lot more to the Olympics in general than anyone really knows or is willing to admit. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of Blame It on the Aliens. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Rarely do I come across this many stories where I get full body chills after reading them. And honestly, I find anything unexplainable or yeah, anything like this glitches, whatever they may be, so fascinating. And it's hard for me not to live react when reading them sometimes. Definitely going to research the pineal gland situation. That is wild. And like the premonition dreams. I just, I literally can't not get enough of these stories. So if you're enjoying this content as much as I am reading it, definitely don't forget to hit the notification bell, subscribe, follow wherever you're listening so that you can get updates about my new releasing episodes. And also tag me on your social media. I'm on Instagram at Blame It On The Aliens Podcast and TikTok, Blame It On The Aliens Pod. Share it with a friend of the genre and don't forget to rate it five stars and leave a comment in the ratings. It makes a huge difference in the show and helps people discover it. So with that being said, I will be back next Thursday with more creepy content. If you have a story to share with the podcast, you can email it to blameitonthealiens1 at gmail.com or click the link in the description to send in a voice message if typing it all out is just too much. So I will see you guys next week. And as always, if you can't explain it, blame it on the aliens, baby. 